We're looking at John chapter 5 today, but I'm going to tell you something. The tooth fairy, going right for a tooth from the tooth fairy, is $4 these days. I don't know what the tooth fairy gave you, but he didn't give me no $4. I'll just tell you that right now. <laughs> and my kids don't get $4 for the, from the tooth fairy either. In fact, actually, the tooth fairy in our house is pretty stingy. The tooth fairy in our house is uh, kind of a loser a little bit because... <laughs> I mean, the first tooth is a really big deal. Like, let's be real, it's really exciting. But after that, it's like 20 teeth to each of, the, each of these children lose. You know, it's after a while, it's like, okay. And the tooth fairy, just so you know, is not nocturnal. About 8 p.m., the tooth fairy gets very tired, and she doesn't always feel like writing a lovely note in undistinguishable, unrecognizable handwriting and scrounging up whatever change. Usually, the tooth fairy doesn't have any cash on her. So I can't tell you how many times the tooth fairy has forgotten to pick up the tooth and leave the money. Here is a note from my daughter, Ava, after the tooth fairy was a no-show. It's really kind of sweet because she's got a heart on there. She says thank you, even though the tooth fairy didn't even show up. And then the response from the tooth fairy, I mean, there's kind of this like half-hearted thank you or half-hearted sorry apology there, and then a lame excuse, and then just kind of like some fake, I don't know, like uh, compliment there at the end. But here's the deal. If the tooth fairy would have been honest that night, and, and, and told the truth, then I think that the note would have sounded more like, I'm sorry, I binge-watched Netflix last night, and I passed out on the couch at about 10 p.m. At about midnight, when I shuffled myself up the stairs, I was just too tired to help you with your precious rite of passage. I know that someday, you guys, if you have kids, your, your notes from the Tooth Fairy are going to be very Instagrammable and lovely and adorable. I just try to set the bar really low for you, okay? That's, I mean, the Tooth Fairy tries to set the bar low. <laughs> Excuses are our go-to, even for the Tooth Fairy, apparently. We have excuses all day long. Excuses for why we don't do the things that we know we actually want to do. Because we have big dreams, right? But so often there is this gap, there is this chasm because, between the life that we're living and the life that we long to live, the life that God has for us. And, and if you don't hear anything else tonight, hear this, that the only way we can jump that chasm, that we can, we can bridge that gap, is the power of God's grace. The power of God's grace. A number of years ago, I found myself with just this unexplained like angst and anger. It was just simmering under the surface. And if you had looked at my life, 
you would have said everything's great. I've got a great husband. I've got a wonderful family. I have a wonderful ministry context. What's the deal? And yet I still had this frustration. I felt like a failure. I was busy, but I felt directionless and purposeless. And, and I was doing really great things, but yet I still felt disconnected from God. And I set wonderful goals, and yet I could never follow through on those goals. And there was just this gap between what I knew God was calling me to and the life that I was living. And so just like the tooth fairy, I had all kinds of excuses. And the guy in John chapter 5 had a long list of excuses too. Let's hear from the word of the Lord in John 5 starting in verse 1. Now there in Jerusalem near the sheep gate pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five colored, covered columnades, here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. Okay, so this pool of Bethesda, there was this tradition around it because it was a pool that was sourced by this under, underground water source, a spring. And every so often an air pocket would come up through there and it would bubble up to the surface. And so you'd have these ripples on the top of the pool. And the tradition was, the superstition was, that whoever could get to the pool first would be healed. And so here's this guy. He's been hanging out by the side of the pool for 38 years. And he has this incredible gap between the life he's living and the life he longs for. Between the life he's living and the life he knows that God has for him. Let's keep reading in verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Now this is a yes or no question, right? Do you want to get well? Yes or no? Let's see how he responds. He says, sir. I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Do you hear that? Jesus asked him a yes or no question, and what does he have? He jumps straight to the excuses. I bet he has a whole laundry list of them, and he just kind of, like a, like a file sorter, he's just like going through them in his head. Today, he jumped to that one. He's got excuses. Maybe sometimes it's like, oh, you know, I'm just not feeling well today. Maybe when I feel a little bit better. Or, you know, it's the weekend. It's really busy. Maybe on, on Monday when things clear up a little bit. Just not today. And he's been waiting for 38 years for just the right moment to be healed. And that moment hasn't come. But we have excuses too, don't we? We have excuses for the unforgiveness that we're still carrying. We have excuses for the fact that we don't know the Bible any better today than we did a year ago. We have excuses for not taking that risk that we know that God is calling us into. We have excuses for the fact that we don't have spiritual fruit and spiritual growth in our lives. And we're stuck. Just like this guy stuck by the side of the pool, we feel stuck. And when we're stuck, we slip into what I call the victim mentality. Sometimes we think we're a victim of time. We say, have you ever said, I'm, I'm so busy? How many of you said that today? Um, you're not going to raise your hand now, are you? You're, I'm so busy. Here's the deal. 
we all have the same amount of time in a day, right? Like that is like the one like equalizer in all of life. We all have 24 hours, the same number of hours, the same number of minutes. And so when someone says, I don't have enough time for that, what they're really saying is that's not a priority. That's not a priority. And what they're also saying is that something else has their passion. Because something always has our passion. We're not passionless people. It's just that something else is burning hotter than God's love compelling us deeper. Victim of time. Sometimes we find ourselves or we believe ourselves to be victims of immediate gratification. Did you know that Netflix subscribers watch an estimated 600 hours of streaming a year. That adds up to almost a month of binging. And yet, I don't, I've never heard of anyone who said on their New Year's resolutions, I would really like to watch more Netflix this year. No one on their deathbed says, oh, I wish I'd watched more Netflix. And yet, here we are, here's the deal. What we want now and we, what we want the most are rarely the same thing. And so what happens is that we enter the prison of indecision. And we become victims of instant gratification. But just like this guy on the side, he's languishing by the side of the pool. He has this gap between the life he's living and the life he's longing to live. And he sees himself as this victim in this place because of comparison. I think that we also can become victims of comparison, where we compare ourselves to the people around. Here's the deal. When you compare yourself, you will either walk away from that, either feeling superior or inferior, but either way, that will always steal your joy. That will always steal your joy. When we compare, it leads to despair. I have a picture of my little guy in his Christmas program. And, but first, before you see him, look at the white arrow pointing at this other kid. I mean, this kid is killing it, okay? He is smiling. He is looking at the teacher. He's singing. He's doing the motions. He is on fire. And then you have my son. He did this all the way through the program. He's just staring at his little buddy Tate over there. And he's a whole, like, whatever motions they're doing, he's a whole thing behind. He's not singing. He's just, I mean, he looks adorable, but we really do think he's uh, wonderful and he's going to be very successful in life. But this was not his most shining moment. <laughs> Poor Ty. Comparison becomes a distraction to us. It takes our eyes off of the only one who really matters, and so we miss it. We start missing God's plan and God's purpose for our lives because we're distracted by comparison. And this is maybe the biggest one. We become victims or we see ourselves as victims of trying too hard. We just go, why even bother? We just vacillate back and forth between trying hard and then giving up and trying hard. This guy, I mean, in 38 years' time, there had to be some days where he showed up at the pool and he was like, today's the day. I'm going to make it happen. I don't know what he did if he was like, just used his upper body strength to drag himself down to the pool. And every time he got there, someone else had made it before him. He tried to white knuckle it. And guess what? When we try to do things ourselves, when we try to close the gap, 
up when we try to close the chasm between the life we're living and the life that we long for by doing it ourselves, it will never work. We can't white-knuckle this. And I think sometimes this victim mentality, this being stuck in this place where we're just languishing by the side of the pool going, oh, why me? It's because we have this messed up view of our relationship with God's grace. Our relationship with God's grace. Because here's this guy, he's struggling to get to the pool one day, and the next day he's resigned with apathy and he's given up. And I think so many times we swing from one end of the pendulum to the other, where we're, we're trying so hard, frantically working to earn God's favor, and then we swing to the other end of the spectrum where we just say, well, whatever, we're just going to assume God's going to have to deal with it because I give up. Either way, either way we end up with this victim mentality, we end up stuck. So here's this guy, 38 years, and then Jesus comes along. And let's read in verse 8 what happens next. It says, then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk at once. The man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. It's interesting to me because usually when Jesus heals someone, he will, there will be some kind of pronouncement like, be healed or you're healed or you, you, you know, your faith has healed you. Your faith has made you well. Some kind of, and here he doesn't say anything like that. He just says, get up, pick up your mat. Walk. He says, do what I'm telling you. Like, do the action of being healed. Live like someone who is already healed. And in case you think that's an easy thing for this guy to live like someone who's already healed, think about it for a second, because the more logical response for him would have been to say, look, Jesus, even if I am healed here, I have not used these muscles for 38 years. They are atrophied, and it's going to take months of physical therapy before I'm ever going to be able to do any walking, right? Like, that's what would have made sense. He could have even just hesitated. Instead, at the beginning of verse 9, It says that at once there's this sense of like urgency. He's scurrying to pick up his mat and to get up and to walk. Something flipped, something turned, something changed in this man's heart. So let's talk for a minute here about our relationship with God's grace and how how it works in our lives. Because the key to moving from excuses to action is the power of God's grace. The key to closing the gap between the life we're living and the life that we long for is the power of God's grace. So, so we know that it was God's grace. It was, it was God that did the healing. But we also know that this man had to participate. In fact, all the healings that we've talked about so far this week, have you noticed? Every single one that involved a healing of the person, they had to participate somehow. It was still God that did the healing. It was still God that initiated the healing. But they had to respond. They had to show up for the healing. They had to put themselves in a position to receive God's grace. And the thing with grace is that grace is not God's pity. I don't know where we got that from. This is not God like patting us on the head and saying, oh, you poor pathetic thing. Let me help you. Let me give you my grace. No, God's grace is God's power 
to do the impossible thing. It is God's power to do something as crazy as pick up your mat and start walking when you've been an invalid for 38 years. It is, it is the power to do a crazy thing like jump the gap between the life we're living and the life that we are longing for. That is what grace is. Okay, so are there any runners out there? Go ahead and raise your hand. I want to see you. You're a runner. All right, good for you. Put your hand down. I'm the kind of runner who leaves the house and I come back in five minutes because I forgot something. I forgot that I can only run for five minutes. I did do a half marathon a few years ago, and I trained for that like it was my job, like I was a beast. And it was still painful and horrible and awful, and I will never do it again. (laughs) But a sure sign, I think we got a picture of it, a sure sign that maybe you haven't trained quite hard enough for the 5K is this right here. The worst part about running a 5K is losing to a guy who is clearly not prepared for it. Notice the jeans and the belt buckle. (laughs) When this guy is lapping you, you maybe should have trained a little bit harder. That's all I'm going to say. Maybe you can get away with putting on a belt buckle and jeans for a 5K. But you'd run into some serious chafing issues if you tried to wear jeans and a belt buckle (laughs) for a whole marathon, am I right? There is no way that you'd sign up for um, the New York Marathon with jeans and a belt buckle on. There's no way you'd sign up for the New York Marathon without having trained first. It's common sense. And guess what? This life that we're living, it ain't no 5K. It ain't no wind sprint around the block. This is a marathon. And this isn't my analogy, by the way. This is Apostle Paul's analogy. He says in 1 Corinthians 9.24, Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. He's saying we're all running, whether we believe it or whether we realize it or not. But there's a right way to run, and there's a wrong way to run. There is this sense that we have training to do. We have to be active. We, have play an, we play an active role in our own spiritual formation, in our own growth, and in our own healing. And so Jesus told this guy, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And the right way to run is to put ourselves in a position to receive God's grace. To stop with the excuses, to stop with the victim mentality, to pick up our mat and to walk. So what does that look like? What does that look like? For him, actively participating meant picking up his mat and walking. But what does it mean for us? Is it okay if I get a little like rubber meets the road here for a minute? Can I do that? Because I want to suggest that means of grace is our way to pick up our mat and walk. Some of you guys know these as spiritual disciplines, but I'm just going to tell you, I like the way that means of grace puts the emphasis on God's initiating work in our life. And I also think sometimes when we say spiritual disciplines, we just automatically think of read your Bible and pray every day. And the means of grace are so much fuller and more generous than that. 
Think scripture, think praying, think fasting, think solitude, but also think of some of the communal things like taking communion like we did this morning or having spiritual conversations that are marked by holy love and authentic vulnerability or serving the most marginalized people in our community or worshiping. These are means of grace. It's any practice that puts you in a position, in a place where you can receive God's grace. My son Micah is pretty much the worst at hygiene. He hates showering, he hates brushing his teeth. Ironically though, he spends like 10 minutes every morning before school doing his hair. Apparently, some girls in his second grade class told, them he, told him he has great hair, and he ain't no dummy. Like, he knows how to use what God gave him. So, but for whatever reason, when it comes to showering, like, he just, he resists. And so, I consistently have to remind him to wash his, when you take a shower, wash your hair too. But I have to, I can't stop there. I have to say, and when you wash your hair, make sure you also rinse your hair. And then I have to go on to say, and when you rinse your hair, make sure that you actually put your whole head under the faucet where the water's, under the the shower head where the water's coming out. And, And this, this is what grace is like. God has these channels of grace, and it's our job to get ourselves in the place where God's grace is already waiting for us. I want you to imagine for just a second that this marble is you. And this bowl right here is means of grace. And when you've got yourself in the means of grace, in those places that are channels for God's grace in your life, channels for God's power, there's a sense of stability there, isn't there? There's a sense of power. I mean, something could come along and we could bump this, we could knock it, and it might roll around for a little bit, but it's going to end up finding its center of gravity. It's not going to throw everything into a tailspin, but imagine you're trying to live that same life, but you're trying to live it outside of the means I knew that's going to happen. You're trying to live it outside of the means of grace. I mean, someone could cough on the front row and it would send everything helter-skelter, right? When we're trying to live outside of God's grace, we wonder why, why is it that my life feels so fragile? Why is it that the smallest thing sends me off? Why do I feel this like underlying sense of anger or frustration or futility or a lack of direction? Because guess what? This is the place of power. This is the place of stability. This is the place of purpose. It comes when we climb into those places where we can receive God's grace. And guess what? When we're in this place, this is also where we have the margin in our lives to offer the kind of love and hospitality and generosity and extravagant love that we always say we want to do, but we never feel like we have, our life is always in too much of a crisis to do it. Guess what? Here, We have the capacity to, this is a beautiful life. This is a place of stability and purpose because when we're here, not only are we receiving grace, 
through God's channels of grace, but guess what? We get to be a channel of God's grace to the world around us. Can I tell you something? It took me a while to learn this, but one of the most freeing things for me was learning some years ago that it was okay not to read the Bible every day. Somewhere along the way, I had bought into the myth that, you know, I needed to read the Bible every day, preferably as early in the morning as possible. But here's the thing. You guys, I look out at these faces, these beautiful faces. You guys are all on this lovely journey where you get to discover, you get to figure out what your rhythm of grace will be. Because everybody's bowls look different. There are as many ways to enter into God's means of grace as there are people in this room. And you have to figure out what your rhythm is. And so for me, (laughs) I realized that my means of grace, one of them, is taking a passage of scripture, and I'll take like four or five hours a week and just like, just dive deep into that passage of scripture. And sometimes it's a crazy week. I, maybe I, sometimes I only do it every two weeks. But what happens is that after I've studied that scripture, I've poured into it, and I've, what, I will take that. I find myself chewing on that and ruminating on that while I'm driving to meetings, while I'm folding laundry. This is a means of grace for me. Another means of grace for me is a baptism service. I mean, anytime I'm in a baptism service, Jeremy will tell you, I cry like a baby. I don't know what it is. <laughs> There is, I do know what it is. There is something, there is something about the temporal and the eternal coming together. It is a thin place. And I feel the Holy Spirit's power filling me in those moments. That is a means of grace for me. Your rhythm is going to be different. But this thing I do know. You want God to do something great in your life. You want God to do something great on this campus and awaken this campus. Guess what? God doesn't ever do a big thing that he hasn't already done in many, many small ways. So what are those small things that God is calling you to? He's asking you to be regular and consistent and intentional about where are those places? He's asking you to climb into those places as a means of grace so that you can receive his power, so that you can jump the gap between the life you're living and the life that you are longing for because you can't do it on your own. As the band comes out and as we respond, I want to leave you with this last picture because... We're going to take some time to respond tonight. And I just, I imagine this guy by the side of the pool. He's got all the excuses. He's got the victim mentality. He's tried and he's failed and he's given up and he's tried again. And Jesus comes to him. And I imagine, I don't know if he did this or not, but I imagine Jesus just like getting right on eye level with this guy looking him right in the eye and saying, do you want to be well? I mean, do you really want it? I think that Jesus is asking us that same question tonight. Do you want to be well? Do you want to grow? Do you want to jump the gap between the life you're living and the life that he is calling you to? And so if your answer to that is 
Yes. Yes. Then you're going to do what the, what the crippled man did. Jesus said, then pick up your mat and walk. And so you're going to get up and walk up to the front. And I have these baskets full of marbles. And you're just going to walk up here as this sign of like, you know, getting up. It says that at once... Like, just with this sense of urgency, he, he grabbed his stuff and he scurried because he was so ready to obey. And so, I just want to encourage you, if your heart is saying, yes, then I want you to come grab one of these marbles and take that home with you and let that be that reminder that this is the place to be right here in the means of grace. That is the place of stability. That is the place of purpose. That is the place of power. That is where the Holy Spirit fills you up. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, you're asking us that question tonight. Do we want to be healed? No more excuses. No more victim mentality. No more trying. Just yes. Yes, God, yes. Help that to be our response in your name. Amen.